John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8. Before we begin, we would like to let friends know about the general gathering of conservative friends. This is an excellent opportunity to go beyond podcasts and Zoom meetings and to gather with like-minded friends for deep worship and fellowship. The gathering will be held this year, 2023, on the weekend of 6th month, 23rd. Details can be found on our website at ohioyearlymeeting.org under Programs or by the link provided at the end of the show notes to this episode. This is the Ohio Yearly Meeting Conservative Reading Presentation and Study of William Schuin's 1675 work, The True Christian's Faith and Experience. This is session number 13. We are beginning chapter 9 on baptism and the Lord's Supper. These sessions are intended for conservative friends, Wilburite friends, but are open to others as well. This particular chapter is fairly long, and it has those two major headings. I'm not sure we will get through it in two sessions, but I would like to see if we can get through baptism in tonight's session, but we may not, and I don't want to rush anything. I just would like to remind everyone that I will read the text that we're looking at, which is the 2007 reprint of the 1830 edition of this work. One thing I want to begin with in terms of it's so important to understand the word we have in English, baptism, is from the Greek word baptisma. The basic meaning of baptisma is an immersion, an immersion into something, usually a liquid, but it doesn't have to be a liquid. It means to plunge something, to dip something into something else. That's the basic meaning of this noun, baptisma, that we transliterate into English as baptism. Same with the word baptize, the verb. That's so important to understand as we go through this, to remember that basic understanding. The word itself does not necessarily have anything to do with water in the original Greek of the New Testament. The New Testament was written in ancient Greek. I hope I get to explain enough to make this whole chapter clearer. There was a lot written by early and later friends on the understanding of baptism as being a spiritual immersion, an immersion into the spirit, and that is critical to understand. Okay, the true Christian believes and lives under the two great ordinances of Christ, baptism and the supper of the Lord in the mystery. Now, the word ordinance, basically it means some observance that is commanded. And in some denominations, the word is sacrament, would mean exactly the same thing. That here, the two great ordinances, the two great sacraments of Christ, baptism and the supper of the Lord. Now, in the mystery, this is interesting because mystery basically has a sense of a secret meaning, something that's obscure, not easily seen immediately. And in the Eastern Orthodox churches, the word for ordinance or sacrament 
is this word in modern Greek, it's pronounced mysterio, mysterio. Uh, but we're talking about the same thing here. The true Christian, he can give an experiential account how he came to live in the enjoyment of these ordinances, specifically how he passed through the work of regeneration, mortification, and self-denial, sanctification, and justification. We went through these in the last several weeks in terms of the metanoia, the true repentance that one must go through, being regenerated, putting to death all those things that are out of line with God's will, and self-denial, that is ego rejection, or renouncing one's ego, one's big ego with all those worldly cravings and desires, sanctification, becoming holy, and justification being seen to be upright in God's eyes, being found innocent, basically, no longer found guilty of whatever sins had happened before. So the true Christian comes to live in the enjoyment of these ordinances before he came to be a true subject and partaker of these ordinances. He can tell how the old man with his deeds were put off, now, it's important to understand in the New Testament, so often you have these understandings of clothing referring to one's deeds, one's actions in one's life. You put on clothes, you take off clothes, and one's clothing should be good clothing, the appropriate clothing. The old man with his deeds were put off, taken off, and the new man put on, as if we're talking about a change of clothing. For he that is baptized, immersed into the Spirit of Christ, has put on Christ, has put on the Messiah. Not only has he professed him while the old man was alive, but now he is immersed with the same immersion that Christ was immersed with to a certain degree, in a measure. Specifically, immersed with the Holy Spirit and fire the Holy Spirit and fire, which are inward and spiritual, and washes and cleans and purifies inwardly and spiritually. That is the, the Holy Spirit and fire. Holy Spirit and uh, fire being something that can purify, can separate the true metal from the dross, the unwanted metal or surrounding rock. This is something which all the outside washings and baptisms were but a type of, a uh, symbol of, a draft of, a prototype of. The true Christian really has undergone and understands the true spiritual, the inward washing, cleaning, and purification that outside physical washings and immersions were just a symbol of, a type of, a draft or a model of. And through this immersion, this baptism, the true Christian is not only washed and made clean, but kept and preserved by it, through it, to be clean and pure, prepared and made fit to put on the wedding garment and to sit at the table of the Lord and partake of the feast of fat things and drink of the wine that he hath prepared. If you recall the sacred story Jesus told about the ruler had a wedding and he invited all sorts of people, and they all had excuses why they couldn't come. So he invited everybody who had his slaves go out on the streets and just invite anyone they could find. When the wedding happened, there was a man there who was not wearing the appropriate kind of dress, the wedding garment. And he essentially gets kicked out because he doesn't have on the right kind of clothing, the right kind of actions in his life. 
And so that's what to and to sit at the table of the Lord. Again, this wedding feast being sitting at the table of the Lord and partaking of the feast of fat things. At that time, if you recall, most people rarely got to eat meat, beef, lamb, goat. There would be some fat and any kind of feast of fat things would be a real feast and to drink of the wine that he has prepared, which is the blood of the New Testament. If you recall, in a Jewish sense, blood referred to life. So this is the lifeblood, the essence, which is the essence of the New Testament, which is drink indeed. And the true Christian eats the flesh of the Son of Man, that meat of the Son of Man, which is meat. Meat meant food, which is food indeed. And this is the supper of the Lord. That last part is a reference to John 6.53. If you go on and look at John 63, where he explains this to the disciples, he says, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that gives life. And the words that I am speaking to you, these are spirit or breath, and these are life. So it is this inward condition of living under the voice of Christ that is what Shuan is talking about. Yes, it's all inward. It's all spiritual, psychological. It has, everything's being explained with physical elements here. Water, fire, whatever. Even the sacred story that Jesus recounted. But there's a spiritual depth behind all of that. And that's what the true Christian really understands. And he, the true Christian, eats and drinks worthily. He's worthy enough to be able to eat and drink that spiritual drink and food. Discerning the Lord's body, having heard the Lord's voice, and having opened the door at which Christ once stood knocking. And he has now come in to him according to his faithful promise. And is having supper with him, he with him, two together. And that's a reference to Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. If you recall 19 and 20 and 19, it says must repent, and then in 20, then the door is there that can be opened to him. There are times when I found myself saying feast on Christ, and what uh -huh. it means is spiritual to really take in, and it's hard to translate into a non-metaphorical <laughs> statement. Yeah, we're so often forced to use concrete, physical, outward symbols Metaphor. to talk about spiritual things. Here, the fruit of the vine is drunk, again, new in the kingdom of God. And here is the blessed man that is eating the bread in the kingdom of God. And he is sitting down there being clothed with his wedding garment of fine linen. He's wearing the right kind of clothing. His head is in the right place. His actions are in correct form. And adorned as a bride for her husband. And enjoying the efficacious virtue of him. Enjoying the efficacious, the power able to produce an effect of him, of Christ which effect is everlasting life and salvation. The true Christian hungering and thirsting no more for the forbidden fruit, if you recall what Adam and Eve had done, or for the wine of Sodom, because the true Christian has the same mind which was in Christ Jesus. If you recall in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, think the thoughts that Jesus thought, that Christ thought, and that's the reference here. Because now the true Christian is thinking like Christ Jesus thought. Christ Jesus, who never was hungry or thirsty for those things, though he was tempted, if you recall, after his baptism, 
yet he never transgressed, but rather he overcame the devil in all his temptation. This is the state and glory of the true Christian. This is the state of being and glory of the true Christian. This honor all the saints, all the holy people, the holy ones have, who come to be established, to be settled in the mind of Christ, having that same mind that Christ had. This honor they in former ages bore witness of and testified of in the Holy Scriptures and is in store and laid out for all, for everyone who love his appearance, the appearance of Christ, and come to God through him. There again, it's a spiritual appearance. Absolutely. It was one of the Evans brothers, I get the two confused, Thomas or William, in reference said that Quakers were a religion of the spirit. And that really was true for all faithful Quakers. And would it be fair to translate appearance as manifestation? Yes, I think you can. When I see this word appearance and appear, I'm thinking of some very specific Greek verbs that are used in the gospel according to John and in the epistles of John. It kind of a broad has a broad meaning. Manifestation, appearance, I think, at least in this particular sentence, I think it's in a very broad sense. I asked the question because evangelicals would take the word appearance and push it back to some final coming of Jesus. Oh, coming. Yes, that's right. No, that would be a different word in the Greek. Actually, they talk about the second coming, but that word coming is really the wrong word. It really is the word for presence in a full sense. Presence being the opposite of absence. But other friends have spoken of in their writings, there are various offices or functions of Christ. There are various forms that Christ comes to a person. And actually, we may even read some of this in this chapter, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that is a real problem with translation in terms of looking at the original language of the Gospel of John and in the Epistles of John. When you use coming, I ordinarily think of something physical. Presence is something different, and it does mean coming in the sense, but it's not really the same. All right, we're going on now. There's a much longer section here on what the nominal titular Christian in name only believe in experiences. So let's begin this. <clears throat> the titular Christian, the Christian in name only, he says he owns, that is, he acknowledges Christ's ordinances, and he professes himself to be a subject of the baptism of Christ and also a guest at the Lord's table. But his profession must be examined, tested, and looked at. For, as in other things, so in this, he must not be so, just because he professes it. Just because he says he's a subject of baptism and a guest at that Lord's table, saying he is is not enough. This would be to judge according to appearance, and so not according to righteous judgment, as we are supposed to, as Christ said. His, the titular Christian's account that he gives to prove that he is so, is as follows. First, as to baptism, he says he has received the administration of it by water, through water, in one fashion or another. Either when he was a child had water sprinkled on his face by the hand of a sinful priest, or plunged all over him. It may be accompanied as well with other ceremonies, such as spittle, cream, salt, oil, and the sign of the cross, etc., or otherwise. I'm thinking for Catholics, <laughs> Roman Catholics, what you're talking about there would be confirmation, which is related to baptism, but rarely at the same time. 
except perhaps for some adults being baptized. Any comments so far here? I like to say sometimes you hear people, Christians, and they're making a confession of faith, but really you can't go by the words. You have to look at the fruit in their lives, whether they really have any real experience of Jesus or not, or whether they're just following a form and a rite, a ritual. That's a very basic Quaker thing. And that's where so much hypocrisy is seen, because saying one is something is not the same as actually being what one says one is. And also maybe their understanding is not the fullness of the spirit anyway. They might be just very programmed and trained up in their religion. He says that somewhere coming up too. Okay, when the titular Christian, the nominal Christian, grew up to years of discretion, came older, able to receive the traditions of his forefathers and to be able to read the Holy Scriptures, in them he finds that various people were baptized in water after they believed in John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, who was the special minister of that baptism. And John was a burning and a shining light in his day, and like the voice of one proclaiming in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and that Jesus himself was baptized there with that, and that many others were baptized not only by John, but also by the disciples and apostles of Jesus. Now, this reader, it may be in the tenderness and simplicity of his spirit, the veil being over his heart, over his consciousness when he reads, is read to conclude surely that this baptism is an ordinance of Christ. This is Christ's baptism. And if I want to be his disciple, I must be a subject of it. If I would like to be counted a believer, I also must be baptized with water, or else I cannot be saved. And so this reader, his eye being abroad, looking away, and being ignorant of that head, that power in which the wise man's eye stands, and not discerning the times and seasons and the various ways of doing things of God, towards mankind since the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve, or perceiving their goal, he, the titular Christian, lays hold of the outward shadow and figure, the outward shadow, the foreshadowing, and the symbol, instead of the inward substance. And the titular Christian gets possession of the shell, the outward shell, instead of the inward kernel. His body, the titular Christian's body, is washed, though not with the pure water of the word of God, the inward word of God, is outside baptized with outward water, and then he accounts himself a subject and partaker of Christ's ordinance. So he is missing that inward change, that inward consciousness awareness of the word of God in him. And it's all physical, all outward ceremony, all outward form, rites, and rituals that he thinks is the baptism. But in this, nominal Christian of all kinds, regardless, is deceived. For notwithstanding his teachers tell him that he entered within the pale of the church and was made a member of Christ through this baptism when he was sprinkled with water in his infancy, and the other, when understanding to imitate others, I say, herein he deceives himself, 
and is deceived because he still remains ignorant of the one baptism, the one true baptism, which washes and cleanses the inside. It purifies the heart, the inward man, the consciousness, the conscience, and it sprinkles the conscience away from dead works, of which all the outside, outward, physical water sprinklings, washings, and baptisms that ever were appointed, directed by God, or practiced by holy men were just a figure or type. They were just a symbol or a prototype, a draft. Again, the titular Christian is paying so much attention to everything physical outward rather than understanding the true baptism is inward. Question? Yes. Entered within the pale of the church. What does that mean? That's a good question here. In Judaism, ancient Judaism, as well as in some forms of Judaism today, they still have baptisms, and the baptisms that are being put into the tub of water is an entrance right into Judaism, and you become a Jew when you do that. And that is what's being said here. You enter into becoming a member of the church, just like Jews, some still do. When people are converted into Judaism, will go through the same rite. If you recall, though, John the Baptist had a baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. And Jesus himself was baptized. But the baptism of repentance is an inward kind of thing. But the titular Christian of any kind of all sorts is deceived because he feels that just becoming baptized with water and has agreed to do it and does it, he now is a member of that church. And there isn't two baptisms, and friends have talked about this a lot. There's only one baptism. As Paul himself says, there's only one Lord, one Master, one baptism, and that's the real inward baptism. Somewhere in the Gospels, it says that Jesus and his disciples baptized, but in another place, it makes a clarification there. His disciples baptized, but Jesus didn't. And we're talking about water baptism. I can't recall exactly where, but in the various writings of earlier friends, someone would say that what happened or what should have happened was that where so many of the other Jewish rites and ceremonies and rituals ended, stopped, this also should have stopped as a physical outward ceremony, but it continued as a kind of entrance into becoming a Christian. But the more important thing was we are, what we are talking about here, the true baptism, the inward baptism, that's much more important. But in the history of Christianity, all the focus really has been on the outward. They may talk about the inward sometimes, but the real focus is the baptism, the physical water baptism. And if you recall what John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but there is someone greater than myself he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's a different kind of baptism. That's an inward baptism. Fire, again, separates the pure metal from the rock or other minerals or, or metals surrounding it. It's a purifying. That is the real baptism, the one that really matters. That's the one baptism, as Paul calls it. And even Paul somewhere mentions in one of his epistles that he didn't really baptize anyone except for one family there, I believe. But his mission wasn't to go about doing this outward ceremony. It was to really preach the word of God to people so that the word of God in them, true word, is what they become aware of and obey and follow.
I just looked up the word pale, and maybe you already talked about this, but it's like a railing or an enclosure. So a person has formally been entered into this enclosure of the church. Oh, yes, that's right. I didn't know if that was what Chad was asking me. Yeah, it comes from the Latin palus, which means a wooden stake, which signifies a boundary that you pass to enter it, formally enter into the church, basically. Well, the word still occurs in Spanish as palo. There's a city near me called Palo Alto, which means a high stick. It referred originally to a tree. I think it was a redwood tree or something. Pa Palo Alto. It's a P-A-L-O in Spanish. Yeah, same word. I was just going to look it up here and just see if it had any other meaning in 17th century English. Yeah, it says here, any enclosure, a district or territory. So what he's saying is that the nominal Christian is still too focused on the outward, on the physical, the outside stuff, the, the, the figure or type, the, the symbol or model or draft. I do remember last week, I think Conrad said something about type. I checked on that. It's a very difficult word to translate into modern English because it had a number of meanings in earlier English, all going back to the original Greek word in the New Testament. And some of them you seem almost opposite each other. So, but the sense usually that I've seen right here in Shuin is of it's a kind of a draft or a foreshadowing. Yeah, foreshadowing. A figure that clearly means symbol. Figura in Latin means symbol. There's a difference between focusing on the symbol and what the symbol represents, the deeper spiritual meaning. That's what matters. And then the next sentence here, Schuin says, the true Christian does not stick to or remain in any of those outward things, but it is a great mystery, a great concealment to tell the titular Christian of being baptized with this one true baptism, which is the baptism of Christ, i.e. in the form of Holy Spirit and fire. Though the titular Christian may read that Christ foretold that even those people, specifically those people that were partakers of John's baptism, which baptism was the greatest of all outward baptisms, should be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. Even though John's baptism of repentance, they still need to go deeper and be immersed in the Holy Spirit and fire. That makes me want to go read something from Matthew at the very end of Matthew, the Great Commission. And this is chapter 28, verses 18 and on. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus is saying, go, and I'm trying to recall the Greek here, Go out and make students of all peoples, all nations, immersing them in the name, that is, immersing them in the essence and the basic nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching those students, those peoples, to observe all things, whatever I have commanded you. And lo, look, I am with you always, right up until the end of the world. I'm also thinking about Acts 19, where they came across people that didn't know who the Holy Spirit was and just had John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism. Right. Yeah.
I'm also seeing as Shuan unfolds this, how easy it is to regulate a religion when it's dependent on outward forms and how difficult it becomes when it becomes a truly inward thing. Because as Jesus said, only God looks on the inside. We have to look on the outside. So it's so much easier for us to just depend on, okay, this person's been baptized, they're good. Instead of, are they really? Are they really immersed in the spirit and fire of Christ and subjecting themselves to his refining fire? That's far more difficult to oversee. Oh, yes. It reminds me, Kim, that I can recall just recently hearing on the radio, on one of these Roman Catholic radio stations, some discussion about the words have to be absolutely correct, exact in baptizing. If you get one or two words wrong, person is not baptized. They're so focused on the outward. You can't say we or other things. It has to be exactly the way that they say it has to be. They, they've lost the, the correct focus. But I'm also reminded of something Conrad said, which has really stuck with me, and that's, I'm not sure most of us want the right focus because it's too hard. It's far easier just to depend on the outward instead of looking inward and beginning to look at who am I in Christ and do I truly reflect him? It's too hard if we think we can do it just by ourselves. And even if we think it's mostly about us instead of the work of God within us. There's just too much baggage we're carrying, outward external baggage, to uh, ever think we can get through most of it all on our own without being yoked to Christ. So just to follow up on that Acts 19, where Paul comes across people, they hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit at all, but they had received John the Baptist's baptism. And Paul tells them, yes, that's a baptism of repentance. But John told you to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's second baptism, right? When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there are about 12 of them. Oh, yes. Okay. And John said, I indeed baptized with water for repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, to carry. He, Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He whose fan, his winnowing fan, is in his hand, and he will make clean his floor and gather his wheat into his garner, into his barn or silo, and burn up the chaff, the worthless stuff, with unquenchable fire. This true Christian witness is fulfilled in early times and now is partaker, taking part in it, having been baptized into Christ, immersed into the spirit of the Messiah. He has put Christ on like those righteous deeds being baptized, immersed into his death, the death of Christ, the death to all that is worldly, pulling one away from Christ. He is buried with Christ in this immersion. And this baptism, this immersion, brings everyone who are partakers of it, of whatsoever nation or country, bond or free, uh, slave or free, into one body, one spiritual body, into oneness of heart and mind and spirit, as Paul testified to the Corinthians, quote, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Grecians, whether we be bond or free, and we have all been all made to drink into one spirit, drink in order to be in that one spirit.
This blessed oneness in unity is the fruit and effect of the one true baptism of Christ Jesus. And we can contrast that with religion. They try and make you conform, but it's not a unity that comes from the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Putting on the mind of Christ, thinking those same thoughts that Christ thought, they have that kind of mind. That's what Paul says in the second chapter of Philippians, about verse 4 or 5. That's what we are supposed to be. If we are to be Christ-like, it's being other Christs, other messiahs, thinking the thoughts of Jesus, how he thought. And having his heart. These things the titular Christian can read of in the Holy Scriptures, which the true Christians were witnesses of. But till the veil of the covering be torn and taken away from off of his heart, and he truly turned to the Lord and becomes sensible of the operation of Christ's spirit as a fanner, as a purger, as a gatherer of the wheat into the garner, and as fire burn up the chaff. Let me stop right there. These are some of the different ways Christ may be experienced. Just mentioning several of them here. Some of the harder understandings. Christ with his winnowing fan and as a purger, as a gathering the wheat into the garner and the fire, the chaff into the fire. Till he knows this working in his own heart, he, the titular Christian, remains in death and darkness and only is talking about heavenly things, but living in earthly things and boasting about Christ's ordinance of baptism. However, he is a stranger to that baptism, and he is sticking in the outside, outward, and the shadows. And he's abiding in the outward court of the temple, which was trodden underfoot by the Gentiles. The Gentiles could only go in the outer court of the temple in Jerusalem. And he is proclaiming the temple of the Lord in his ordinances, but he is not dwelling there in that temple of the Lord. If you recall, Paul said that you are temples of the Holy Spirit. So he is not dwelling there, nor is he a living witness of it or a member of it. This is baptism. This is the true baptism that faithful friends have focused on since the founding of Quakerism. The image of, of threshing is pretty explicit. In that day, the threshing was carried on by oxen trampling on the harvested grain on a floor till the grain was separated from the chaff. And then you blew it to get rid of the chaff and only the heavier kernels remain on the floor. Today's threshing goes through a combine, which is no less violent than being tromped on. It's rubbed through a cylinder and then it's pulled up over sieves that shake back and forth until the grain falls down to the bottom and is, is augured up to the bin. This isn't a, a peaceful experience. It's something that really shakes you up to the core of your being. Can't do it without Christ helping us go through that fanning, that purge, that fire. But we need to keep our eyes on the prize. Other friends who have written about baptism, Fox, Penn, Pennington, Barclay, Joseph Phipps, a lot have written articles and essays and chapters and books on baptism, on this true baptism, what it really means to be immersed in the essence of God. And this is what we should be proclaiming, the whole focus on the inward rather than the outward, on the spiritual rather than on the worldly, the secular, the physical. 
I'm going to stop there because we'll next time begin talking about the Lord's Supper and how that has been understood by traditional faithful friends. I think this can be a rather a shock, as Schoen alludes to in this piece, to other Christians who have never really heard the focus on all these words in the New Testament about the inward nature of a true baptism, of the one true baptism that really matters, because the focus has always been on the outward. It's an entry right, physical outward right, into becoming a member of a given church. But like I said, friends felt that this too, as one more Jewish rite, should have disappeared, but it didn't. And it may have been the case that it was the continued, it was there, still there for the weak, for those who still didn't quite understand the true inward nature, the spiritual nature of being baptized. But then the focus changed to where the outward was the most important thing. So easy to lose the focus of 2 Corinthians 4 when Paul says that we are called to fix our eyes not on what is seen, the physical, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen, the spiritual, is eternal. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. A child will focus on the outward, but we do need to grow up and think like adults, no longer as children. Paul mentioned that of himself and others. Anything else? Or even to lose our focus on that inward Christ and make a religion out of anything. I think man can make a religion out of anything. He can make a religion out of Quakerism. He can make a, a religion out of early friends. He can make a religion about talking about everything instead of the experienced reality of the spirit. And so I like early friends when they test everything because they say they test everything by the fruit of the spirit. Is God's purity in you? Is his joy? Is his love? It's not about talk. It's not about words. It's about that experience reality and what Christ has done in our heart. And I was in a meeting last week and they objected to the use of word saints. Somebody called himself a saint. I think it was George Fox calling himself a saint, actually. And they objected to it. And I we said, well, no, it's, it's not about you and what you do. It's about that inward work of Christ that he's accomplished in your heart and in your mind. In the last chapter, chapter 20 of this work, which I think is one of the two most important chapters, as I've mentioned, along with chapter five on repentance, Schuin goes into even more complex problem, and that has to do with one could be professing what we are professing right now about the focus should be on the inward as friends. But are we actually there in terms of the experience, understanding? This is even a, a more complex, higher level kind of problem. I've never underestimated the subtlety of, of evil spirits, of Satan, to get in any way he can. We always have to be on guard. Never let our guard down. All right. Well, thank you all. I think Nancy wants me to pause. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote in our introduction is from Mark chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, the New International Version. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.